Seven minutes past ten. Here is an excerpt from my next guest's book. The chaos on the outside we can catalogue well enough. A climate crisis, a pandemic, ongoing racism, rising inequality, soaring cost of living, wars, an increase in mental health problems. And then there's burnout, increased addiction, substance misuse, enslavement to our phones, an eroded sense of common ground, abuse and hate on social media, a retreat to our homes and screens and silos and platforms and echo chambers, an existential malaise brought on by a lack of ritual community or shared meaning in our lives. Bridget Delaney was afflicted with all of the above, I imagine, when she decided to study the Stoics. And now she's written a book called Reasons Not to Worry, How to Be Stoic in Chaotic Times. And she's with me now. Hi, Bridget. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm well. You just got back from holiday in New Zealand, I hear. Yes, I had an amazing week, um, part of the week in Coromandel and um, then um, Waikiki. Waikiki? Uh, Waikiki, Waikiki. Yeah. <laughs> Waikiki um, might be elsewhere. Did you manage yeah, to avoid the flooding in the Coromandel? Did you time it right? Yeah, it was beautiful. We went to the hot beach. We went to Cathedral Beach, um, did some great walks, lazed around. It was such a beautiful part of the world. Right. Let us speak of Stoics, Bridget. Now, my imagination always had Stoics as rather grim-faced, impassive types who didn't care about anything. They just trudged on. You say this is not the case. Absolutely not. I mean, somewhere along the line, the word kind of became bastardised. I mean, the Stoics, the word Stoa comes from the, the ancient Greek word Stoa, which is the painted porch where this school of philosophy used to meet in Athens. Isn't that interesting? So the word Stoic came from the Stoa under which they used to meet. Yes. And then over time that word's changed meaning to mean sort of repressed, having a stiff upper lip, not showing any joy. But if you actually go back to the work of the Stoics, there's really very little of that in their their philosophy. Now you've studied... Three main Stoic philosophers, Seneca first, who was, you know, f- born in 4 BC, Epictetus, who was born about 50 AD, and Marcus Aurelius, 121 AD. Did they all share their ideas, one from the other? There's definitely a lineage, um, but what was fascinating about the three men, so Stoicism was around 350 BC in Greece, but a lot of the work didn't survive or survived only in fragments. So the Roman period, which is where those three men are from, is where the work, most of the Stoicism that we read today is from that period because it managed to to survive, you know, various burnings of libraries and, you know, uh, claps in civilizations and, you know, various other things. So we have those three as our main um, kind of Stoics where the work is the most complete. But they were actually quite different people. So Epictetus was born a slave um, 
and was lamed by his master when he was quite young, so had a hard early life um, with not much freedom. Seneca was, I guess, of the merchant class, um, was born into a, a prosperous family but then became enormously wealthy and powerful as an adult, so kind of a self-made man. Um, very similar, I guess, to the Elon Musk of um, of his day, you know, like hugely wealthy. And then Marcus Aurelius was born into great power and had only really known um, huge wealth, huge power and this this dynasty that he was part of. So three three men from different perspectives, but all riding through the lens of this philosophy. Also huge tragedy, Marcus Aurelius, as you point out, he there was war and plague going on and he lost nine of his 14 children. He wasn't very well himself. He wrote Meditations, which um, which is profoundly uh, influential book. It is, and I... I'd obviously, you know, I'd heard of meditations over the years and I'd picked it up but found it beautiful but slightly impenetrable. And then by studying Stoicism, suddenly the book came alive in a way that it hadn't previously. Like all the little sayings that he'd jotted down had this kind of larger philosophical context. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, you know, akin to a holy book once you, once you work out really what he's, what he's talking about and where he's coming from. It's, it's a remarkable work. We'll talk about some of its tenets in a moment, but what took you mm-hmm. to Stoicism in the first place? Look, it was it was happenstance. Um, I trained as a well, I trained as a lawyer and became a journalist, so I didn't have a f- philosophical background. Um, but I had a weekly column for the Guardian where I used to try out various things each week and write humorous columns about them. And one thing I tried out was a thing called Stoic Week, which was run through the University of Sussex. And, look, I didn't give it much of a go. I, I kind of took the piss out of it a bit and then got some emails from some angry Stoic readers saying, look, this philosophy is really useful and you didn't give it a proper go. So the following year I went back on my own, not for a column, with some friends and we formed a little Stoic group, a study group, and we met on WhatsApp and also in around Sydney and we did the course. Each day you had to do readings, a discussion, and talk about how stoicism could, you know, improve your life. So we did that, and then a lot of us, you know, became really into it, and me and another friend kept going, and that was in around 2018. So, you know, when by the time the pandemic happened, I was really sort of hooked into it, and um, the book came out after that. The aim of one of the exercises was to treasure your friends in the here and now rather than being full of sadness and grief and regret when they die, friends and family, presumably, that is. Mm. Let Mm. us see to it, says Seneca, that the recollection of those whom we have lost becomes a pleasant memory to us. And that that sounds great, but but the way you do that is to visualise the death of these people, which seems a bit morbid. It does, but um, they, they don't think you should visualise it for hours on end, but it's more giving yourself a tiny little dose of sorrow or reality, you know, realising that everyone in your life um, is mortal. They will die. If you don't die first, they will die before you, so you'll attend their funeral and you will grieve them as they will grieve you. So it's good. They thought it was good to remind ourselves of that quite regularly um, because if we're not fully in the moment with our friends and family, if we're not fully present, 
and then they happen to die soon after, there's the second suffering, which is the regret of not having properly been a friend or not properly being present when the friend was actually alive. So it was a way of of forcing you to kind of really use the moments that you have. Of course, when the pandemic came, I suppose you would have had good practice in being stoic. <laughs> I was learning. You know, it was um, it was a really interesting time to realise that we actually don't have a huge amount of control over our lives. So the Stoics had this test, which is kind of the foundation called the control test, and they believe that there's really only three things in life we can control, and that is our character, um, our actions and reactions, and how we treat others, and everything else is outside our control. So the pandemic was a great lesson in in learning that I couldn't control much. I could control my my reaction to, say, um, you know, various health orders and restrictions on my freedom. I could control how I was with other people, um, but I couldn't control whether or not I got sick. You know, that that was kind of out of my control. I couldn't control whether or not my workplace shut down. I couldn't control the broader economy. Um, I couldn't control not being able to travel, which was a huge part of my life before the pandemic. So, yeah, it was a it was a, a real-life um, laboratory with Stoicism. What would the Stoics advise on climate change, for example, which most of us accept is beyond our individual control, and yet, and yet, what would they do? So they actually had a version of climate change um, that Seneca wrote a lot about. The, the ancient Greeks thought the earth would be consumed periodically by fire, um, Seneca actually thought it would be floods. And so a lot of his, well, Thyestes, one of his plays, is kind of riven with this impending sense of doom. Um, but they didn't have science then or the sort of science that we have now, and they certainly didn't have technology. So they wouldn't necessarily have known how to mitigate um, against climate change. So we are armed with information, which the Stoics say we should use use the good information that we have and use our reasoning to solve problems. So um, a Stoic would look at the science um, and look at what's advised, look at the facts, and then say, okay, well, we have to get admissions down to this level if we want to survive. Um, What can I do individually to play my part in that, whether it's electing a party on a platform of um, climate, you know, know, helping um, get rid of climate change, or it might be, individual actions around using um, certain fuels or travel, um, or it might be, you know, becoming more communal and banding with a group of people in order to sort of have a greater action than the one that you can provide as an individual. Uh, But they would also realise that, you know, responsibility for the entire planet's climate is beyond the control of one individual. What about the war in Ukraine? That they would say there's not much. I mean, I'm sitting here um, in Sydney uh, and you're in New Zealand. Um, the, there is, they would say there's not much we can do from our various perches um, to, to change that war. Um, you could, you know, support um, charities or you could support people who are involved in it, but we can't control Putin. You know, that's outside our control. So... Um, they would argue that you would need to, you know, you need to be informed but not to get too deep in the weeds with um, 
stress, worry, and, um, you know, frustration about things that you can't control. No, I suppose what I'm getting at is that I find unpalatable the idea that being stoic implies you just shrug your shoulders and say, well, I'm there, I can't do anything about it, so. That was a big thing that the the friend I was um, studying stoicism with, that was a huge thing we struggled with. Like we tried to work out where does social justice fit in with this philosophy. And we looked at it from all corners. We found that there wasn't a huge amount of room because of the control test. Mm. But where there was room was the Stoics have something that's very important to them called the four virtues. And the four virtues are moderation, wisdom, courage, and justice. And so using the virtue of justice, which is, you know, making sure that everyone has a, a fair go, making sure that that there's as little inequality as possible, making sure that everyone has a fulfilling, happy, peaceful life free of conflict. You know, that fits into that justice virtue. So if you do want to live a Stoic life and live according to the Stoics, justice has to be a part of that. So, yeah, there was there was room, but once again the control test does, it, it does bring you to reality a bit. Um well, I think there's, you know, there's room in our own individual lives to make huge amounts of difference, and I don't see Stoicism as being um, a license to be apathetic at all. In fact, if you look at the three Stoics that we're talking about, each of them was extraordinarily vigorous, powerful. Um, they were involved deeply in public life, um, whether it's through teaching like Epictetus or politics like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. So, yeah, but look, you do have to, you do have to kind of find the chinks in the armour a little bit. The justice that you mentioned, making sure mm. that everybody, you know, is okay. I mean, it, it implies that you should you should give away all your worldly goods to charity in a way. <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, according to the Stoics, they had a, they had a kind of interesting, um, they had an interesting perspective on wealth. So Definitely Seneca was hugely wealthy and Marcus Aurelius was obviously wealthy and powerful. But they believe you should treat wealth as as a preferred indifferent because it's essentially outside your control. Like a financial collapse could happen, you could make a bad investment, someone could steal from you. So you can't hang on to wealth because it's a movable feast. Um, so they believe that you should prefer to have wealth because it's nicer to have nice things, but you should essentially be indifferent because it will come and go. Um, and you don't want to have your tranquility ruined. And that's but a thing, is it? Yeah. A preferred yeah. indifference. A preferred indifference. So um, be indifferent to indifferent things is what they said. And an indifferent thing is is um, your health, um, your reputation, and money. You know, they're all things outside your control. Now, that hasn't quite answered your question about should, you know, mm. in order to stop inequality, should you give away your money? Um they believed that um, you could do that, but are you then going to be in a position to give away, like give away your money over a longer period of time if you have no money left because you've given it all away? They're far more you know, interested in can you set up schemes or can you be sort of elected as an official to then ensure that there are equitable policies rather than, you know, just handing out bits and bobs. So... Uh, yeah, they did have a whole sort of whole sort of chapters on 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 wealth, um, 
yeah, they were at the end of his life. Seneca was trying desperately to give away his money because it, he thought it made him a target for Nero. So um, <laughs> he, he ended up seeing his wealth as being a thing that made him vulnerable. Um, so yeah, epic. You say epic tetters, don't you? Epic tetters. Yes, epic tetters. Oh. Um, but he, I mean, either or, none of them are around to correct no, me. <laughs> that's right. Who cares? I laugh. He said, <laughs> I laugh at those who think. They can damage me. They do not know who I am. They do not know what I think. They cannot even touch the things which are really mine and with which I live. Now, he did not live in a time of social media. I wonder how he would have dealt with it. Oh, they would have all been fantastic um, <laughs> because a lot of their teachings I found fitted really nicely into the, the sort of the um the vitriol and the rumors and the uh, sort of attacks that that you can get on social media so i don't know whether in rome at that time there just must have been a lot of gossip and a lot of backstabbing but they had a whole range of fixes in in terms of dealing with other people's opinions so um as i said earlier your reputation is a preferred indifferent so you don't have control over it so it's preferable to have a great reputation or a good reputation but it's ultimately outside your control. So you shouldn't let it worry you if people are, are slandering you, slagging you off, saying terrible things about you online um, because you don't want to ruin your tranquility. So that was a real lesson for me um, on like my medium of choice is Twitter, which is often referred to as the bad place. Like it's a, a place of, you know, a lot of negativity and, um, you know, when people attack me on Twitter, I just channel the Stoics and I think, well, have I behaved badly in this in interaction? Has my character been damaged? If not, you know, I'll just let something slide off me. So, but if I've been badly behaved on social media, then I should apologize because I don't want my character to be, um, you know, harmed. So yeah, it's all about how, how are you behaving, you know, and how are you reacting rather than what other people say about you. Um, one of the things you say is what you've learned. You don't need to judge everything. Now, that comes with the territory these days, especially with those sort of knee-jerk Twitter responses. You know, you're either a, in favour of it or you're against it. This is good or it's bad. This is dreadful or it's wonderful. It's so extreme and there's no nuance and people judge immediately and fervently and often mm. damagingly. How do you not judge? So, I mean, Marcus Aurelius had this great line, which is you always have the option of having no opinion, and that's a great thing to remember. Not everything needs your, your take or your judgment because there's a lot of things we don't know about. So how we judge, how we stop ourselves from judging things quickly is to become conscious of our impressions. So it might be that um, I'm walking home late at night, I hear footsteps behind me, I have a judgment um, that I'm in danger, that, you know, I might be attacked, so I'll, I'll tense up, I'll get very, you know, my heart rate will start beating, and then I'll hear a voice behind me say, hey, Bridget, and it might be a friend. So then there's a second judgment, which is I'm relaxed, you know. So things keep changing and if we if we have our judgments fixed we don't allow for situations to be fluid so 
What the Stoics say is allow an, an initial biological judgment, like fear if there's a loud noise or someone behind you, but then investigate it. And if it's if it's nothing that's going to damage you, then just relax, be tranquil, um, and don't you know don't place a, a, a an emotion on every little thing that happens to you or every little thing that you see or every little thing that you read. Like just read it and let it go. So um, easier said than done, but I, I find suspending judgments when they're not needed um, has been quite liberating. Yeah. Um, in the epilogue, you talk about your friend Jo. She had cancer, she had treatments, um, and she got the all clear uh, just as last April. Um, mm. She did some stoicism lessons, and she said mm. something interesting. So much of the advice and counsel you get when you get cancer is well-intentioned, but it falls into the category of toxic positivity. Can you elaborate on that? So um, often when you're going through something terrible, um, people will say it'll get better, um, you know, you'll get well again. You've got this. this. Just, yeah, you've got this. When in actual fact you may not get better, um, you may get worse. And so I think... And then you I feel, mean, what, a failure because you didn't failure, guess it yeah. enough, yeah. And I think with, with my friend Joe, what happened was she got overloaded with so much positivity, it didn't allow for the reality of her experience, which was she could die, and it's very frightening. And I think if no one helps you look that reality in the face with you, it can be very lonely being that sick because you feel like you have to adopt a mindset to please everyone else. Um, and the Stoics had this, the Stoics had a kind of different perspective, which is they didn't like hope. Like Seneca said, um, cease to hope and you will cease to fear because hope is something that's outside our control. It's outside your control if your um, health gets better or worse. It's outside your control if you get cancer. You can take lifestyle decisions that, may lessen the chance of getting sick, but ultimately, you know, a lot of this stuff is random. Um, and so they believed that if you look reality in the eye and you get a sense of what your chances might be and then you live each moment in a, in a full way um, and then you might die sort of 20 years earlier than someone else has. But they said so many people live till they're 75, but they actually stopped living when they were 25. So... You know, there's a sense of you live, you live more in, in a in a place from of reality rather than clinging onto something that um, may not, may not, you know, work out for you. Now, I'm sure there are lots of people that have found great solace in hope, um, but the Stoics weren't among those people. It sounds quite Buddhist in many ways. Uh, is there a link? I've, I've looked for a link, and I'm sure you know other people have have researched this um i i couldn't come up with anything but it feels like there must have been some crossing of the trade routes back in the you know 350 bc or whatever between an early stoic and a buddhist because so many of the ideas are connected i mean lack of attachments one of them um you know trying to slow down your reactions is another one um realizing that you have a lack of control over a lot of things in life is also another one. But um, with the Stoics, there was no, you know, there's no deity. Um, 
there's a th- you could become a stoic sage, but no one's ever claimed that mantle. Um, there's no sort of holy book. There's no church. There's no um, sense of an afterlife or reincarnation. In fact, when the Stoics talk about death, they talk about being returned to the earth, like being returned to the soil almost. Um, so, yeah, there's some, there's some, you know, connections, but also they're quite distinct. You practice Stoicism every day. In what way? So a, a lot of the Stoics journaled, which I, I was doing long before I discovered Stoicism, but it's a way of... Um, at the end of each day, looking at what you've done that day and writing down not necessarily what other people have done to you but how your character has been throughout the day. So if I've been at work and I have a problem with my manager or my editor, um, I wouldn't be writing about her, something angry about her. I'd be writing, how did I handle myself in that situation? Did I lose my temper? Did I keep my cool? Um, was I able to process things? quite easily or am I still stuck and dwelling on, you know, an argument that I might have had or a conversation that I might have had hours earlier. So the practice of journaling is a really great one just to sort of assess how you've gone each day and then try and do better the next day. Um, I also just that that piece about judgments, you know, I try and stop myself from making judgments if it's not necessary and that's something that doesn't come naturally. I have to I have to really sort of be conscious of when I go into a judgment about someone else. Um, the early Greek Stoics, there's one guy, Chrysippus, who talks about a judgment being like a cart that's going really fast down a hill, um, and it's about stopping the cart before it takes off down this hill. Um, and that's what I try and do with thoughts before they race off into an area that might not be in reality or might not be useful. I, I stop that process um one of our listeners said something um interesting just now he said curiosity helps non-judgment be open to the situation and accept that you can't possibly understand all situations but if you're curious about something it does slow the cart down doesn't it it certainly does i love that advice that's fantastic um, by staying curious, you're not you're, you're being open, but you're also um, not letting uh, people get hurt very easily. You know, like they um, there's a sense of being thin skinned, you know, easily wounded. Um, and, I, and the Stoics also hated anger. So anything that anything they could do to stop themselves from getting angry, um, they they threw everything at it. Hate and doesn't sound people, very Stoic. No, 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 no. It doesn't sound Stoic. They they um. They didn't prefer ang- they pre- they preferred calmness over anger. It's right. probably a more stoic way of <laughs> of putting it. Um, but but being curious and open is a is a way of diffusing anger. Um, and there's a, an example I think in my book of if you're in a car accident and or you know someone hits your car instead of exploding um, and then you know escalating the situation, it's just being open to okay was this my fault was this your fault let's talk about it. And often there can be a far better resolution for everyone if that that open, non-reactive mindset is taken instead of that initial rush of judgment and blood to the head. You do just describe being in Denpasar, I think, where you know mm. all sorts of ridiculous traffic incidents occur, but nobody seems to get outraged about them. And you say to the driver, you know, do you not have road rage? And he says, you what? Road rage, what is that? 
It's a, what is it, that? But why? <laughs> we just go off at the merest hint of somebody, you know, wanting to get in the lane ahead of us. Well, he explained it to me as it's it's very poor form um, or you show a lack of faith if you get angry, you know, if you lose control of your emotions. It's, ah. it's, it's um, yeah, really bad form, I mean, very immature, uh, whereas in our societies there's, there's no one sort of saying, oh, that's that's immature or you need to, you know, you need to work on your anger. Usually that only happens down the line after someone's been so angry they've been in court or, you know, they're in some anger management program. But culturally I think we we can learn a lot from, from other places where anger is a complete no-no. Somebody else has told me that they gave... Last Christmas, I think, I can't find the text now. Last Christmas, they gave half their family a copy of Marcus Aurelius's book. What about the other half? <laughs> why, I why did they miss that? They don't, exactly right. They don't, they don't say what was wrong with the other half, but I suppose maybe, maybe the idea maybe was they that they... Maybe they were so wise they didn't need it. Maybe it was a controlled experiment, Bridget. Um, you can still have fun if you're a Stoic. One of the sections in your book says, remind yourself what good food and drink really is. Absolutely. Although Marcus Aurelius does go on to say, uh, you know, beautiful yes. sort of expensive Shut meats. Shut up, Marcus. <laughs> just the carcass of a dead animal and wine is just a moldy grape. Um, and, and sex is just a, you know, a membrane you know, and, you know, friction um, and a bit of mucus. Oh, look, so he did, he does, he does bring everything down to its its sort of material level. Um, they ha- there's a chapter on my book on um, alcohol, which was so fun to write because the Stoics um, lived in an abundant time, the Roman Stoics definitely, where there was a lot of alcohol. There was a lot of parties and feasts and um, they had to manage their drinking just like, we do this time of the year, um, had to had to practice moderation. So there's all these teachings around how to deal with, you know, saying no to wine at a party and how to how to not get, you know, so drunk that you're vomiting everywhere. And um, it made me realise that we think things have changed over thousands of years, but human beings are still pretty much the same as they were, you know, two millennia ago. The realisations you say and all the things we've been talking about ha- have been a number of years in the making. And once you have them, the hard work is just beginning. The stoic practice is daily. It's not something that you just pay lip service to. So it's quite hard work. It is quite hard work, but then you realise it's actually harder work not being stoic. It's harder work being rocked by emotions that take, you know, that you could get over very easily, but that instead, if you haven't put the work in, take months or years to get over. It's hard work suffering twice. You know, the, the Stoics talk about grief. So the first suffering might be the loss of someone close to you, but the second suffering might be years lost to to grieving and, and regrets that you didn't properly enjoy that person while they were here. Um, you know, it's it's hard work controlling anger, but it's even harder work repairing relationships after you've gotten angry and the horse has bolted. So, you know, life life is hard, but stoicism actually does make it easier. You've noticed a change in yourself. 
Have other people noticed a change in you? Sadly, I've had very few compliments about my new stoic persona. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I did have one friend that, that said I'm less, um, I got some good news and I was less excited than I usually would be. And that was sort of a sad compliment to get that I, my, my temperament's evened out. Mm. But um, a lot of the changes um, that I've noticed have, have been around like good and bad. So when something really good happens, I'll be less um, you know, I'll be less high from it. But when something bad happens, I'm less low from it. So tranquility is something that I've been really working hard on in the last few years. And I think that is, you know, that's come to pass. And that's a great feeling to 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 feel a bit steadier in the world. I hope you have a lovely Christmas. Thanks so much, Kim. So do I. Or, or Saturnalia, as they call it in um Ancient Roman times. That sounds more fun, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Get into those mouldy grapes and (laughs) dirty dead flesh. Very nice to talk to you, Bridget. Thank you.